on today's episode, we're going to be talking with a product development expert. So we're going to be talking about the product creator's blueprint. That's how to move your ideas to prototype and then to market. Do stay tuned. Welcome to 2X e-commerce, the e-commerce marketing growth podcast where you ask questions and I, Kenei, answers them. Also hear from proven marketing growth experts who are number one or number two in specialist areas of online retail marketing. So if you work in or own an online retail business, listen in, get involved, join me, and let's put some fuel to skyrocket your e-commerce growth. So on the inbound marketing strategies, how do you beat Amazon? Natural search and our search engine position is critical to the customer flow through the website. I personally would not have an account process interrupt checkout flow at all. My favorite customer lifetime value calculation is an easy one. It's your average order value times that purchase frequency times uh, your customer lifespan. I'm Kune Campbell. Let's get rolling. If you're looking to grow your business, there's only one way by building real quality customer relationships. Most marketing software will claim they can do this, but will never deliver on their promises. You need to demand more from your marketing software. And that's where Clavio comes in. Clavio helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening and understanding cues from your customers, allowing you to easily turn that information into valuable marketing messages. That is why 10,000 innovative brands have switched to Clavio. What's the secret to building customer relationships? Tune in to Clavio's Beyond Black Friday docuseries to find out and unlock marketing strategies you can use to keep momentum going year round. Just head over to clavio.com forward slash beyond BF for more. That's clavio.com forward slash beyond BF.com. Hey folks, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. I'm Kune, your host, and um, this is the podcast dedicated to rapid growth in online retail. On today's episode, you'll, you guys are going to learn about product development, product discovery, or idea, idea discovery, and then product development. So, you know, how do you convert your ideas to prototypes and eventually bring it to market. Um, the experts I have on um, on the show today, Philip, is amazing. He is um, he's, he's got a, a lot of experience. It, it's it's great. And um, this episode was recorded in the Facebook group um, as a live um, as a as a live stream, basically. So those of you in the Facebook group would have been able to listen to this live as we recorded it unedited. And um, if you had any questions, you could have asked Philip, you know, directly um, on, on, on Facebook. Anyway, to join the Facebook group, um, just go to bit.ly, so bit.ly forward slash e-commerce FB. That is bit.ly forward slash e-commerce FB or search for e-commerce growth accelerator on um, Facebook and um, check out the groups tab. It should pop up. 
If you have any difficulties, reach out to us in terms of finding it and you know, join the conversation. So this um, show really um, is a one way where you listen to me only. And if you ever wanted to interact with me, ask me questions or ask other e-commerce entrepreneurs or e-commerce marketers questions, there is a group on Facebook to take the 2x e-commerce experience to the next level. So I encourage you to um, to join. Um, it's it's great um, to to have to to be able to you know interact with you know um, most of you guys on this. So um, yeah, jump in and and enjoy. Enjoy this show. Um, it's it's it, it is really really good. Um, and see you see you at the end. Welcome to the 3X e-commerce podcast show. Um, it is a podcast dedicated to rapid growth in online retail. This is one of our first Facebook Live interviews. Um, it's raw. So if you're tuning in um, right now um, at 1.45 on the 15th, 1.45 London, that is, it should be 8.45 in New York. If you're tuning in today on the 15th of May, um, at 1.45 London, um, you're going to be live, basically, in, in the Facebook group. Um, so on today's episode, um, I, I have with me a gentleman who is an expert in, in products, in product development, and I had been wanting to bring him on the show for, for a few years now, um, but I just held back um, for, I think I bookmarked his website, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll come back to it, and it never really happened. And then um, I started to get questions from a few members, um, you know, about product development. And I was like, okay, um, now would be a good time. And I had to just, I think I spent like an hour trying to research, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I couldn't find the bookmark, by the way, but I had to, 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 to spend like an hour research. I actually joined your Facebook group. Anyway, I'm, I'm babbling, you know, talking too much. Um, basically, Philip Valicia is... Um, is the founder of the product startup. Now um, he is a, a mechanical engineer, you know, by uh, by training, and has over twelve years' experience, you know, under his belt. He's worked for Fortune five hundred, you know, companies on the one hand, and he's also helped lots of you know businesses like you, like small businesses and startups actually launch their physical products, you know, um, to market. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Philip to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be on the show. Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy to, to have you on. Probably not doing you sufficient justice with the introduction. Um, could you take a minute or less to, to, to introduce yourself to, to, to listeners, please? No, I think you did great. Uh, in short, that's I spent a lot of my life uh, taking ideas and turning them into products uh, ever since I was, uh, even a, before I went into college. That was just a hobby that I did. I was very hands-on. Um, one of those guys that was taking things apart when I was a kid and not really putting them back together the way they should have been. Um, and we learned by brute force in that way. And then as I went through, you know, university and college, uh, uh, applied a more scientific method to that. And now I get to do that in my day to day. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, um, so you, when did you start working with startups? Um, actually it was early on in my career, an entrepreneur hired me to work for one of his small companies that he was looking to grow. And I just got in on the, on the ground floor as one of the first three engineers that were working there. 
Um, and ever since then, I've always been interested in that because I feel that startups and small business owners are scrappy in that sense. You know, they do a lot of things faster uh, with less budget and, you know, they have different ideas about doing things that maybe a larger company doesn't. You know, they're more agile in that way. And so I was always drawn to that. Interesting. Uh, on your, I think one of the concepts you, you talk about is the, um, the fact that anybody can, you know, develop a product in a structured scientific, you know, way that would ensure that your, your product actually goes to market is, could you sort of break that down as to how like um, you, that methodology, please? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I've got like a DIY product startup uh, roadmap toolkit that you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, But before I get into that, I guess the one thing that I wanted to emphasize is that product development is iterative. So you can't go through it and expect a straight line. It's not going to be from A to B that you're going to get from your, you know, your idea to where you need to go. Um, So people get discouraged, I think, early on in the process and, and say, oh, well, I haven't you know, made as much uh, headway or uh, it's taking longer than I expect it to be. And they get discouraged early on. And that's what I think one of the things with specifically with physical products, um, it's more difficult to make those pivots because you're as each step along the process, you're kind of committing more and more energy, more and more resources but you're also reducing risk as opposed to software where you can kind of scrap what you've done in the meantime. And the only thing that you're doing is maybe, you know, going back on some of the time that you spent, but with physical products, you're actually committing money to some things. And I think that's what scares people off. It does. By following, follow, sorry, by following this process, you're able to kind of de-risk some of that. Mm. I, I guess you have to, so, you know, um, issues or you know challenges to in you know in, in, in the spectrum you have a set of entrepreneurs that are building one product you know and they want to get it right and once they get it right you know they may need a few more months or years to expand you know their product offering and then you have another set of you know entrepreneurs that are you know launching a set of products so if you think about like fashion for instance um, most of the time, if it's not an accessory, you know, fashion website, you're most likely going to be, you know, releasing a, a collection, you know, of, um, of designs. Um, and as much as you might, you know, as a fashion person, um, you know, have an eye for design, you know, be a designer yourself. There's also, you know, the, the, the quality issues, you know, with the range. How do you sort of balance, you know, both ends um, from a group of products, would, would you advise um, a, you know, an entrepreneur going into you know, manufacturing and launching their product to, to work on just the one, perfect it and extend? Or um, can you apply the methodology for a group of, um, of products? No, I, I think it depends on whatever your personal bandwidth is. I think um, we've certainly launched products in parallel and you can be at any step of the process on each individual product at any time. It just depends on how much uh, you can commit to it, I suppose. But as you're kind of alluding to, if if you're putting 
on the one hand, if you're doing one product at a time and it doesn't quite work out, and then you have to go back to the next one, you've lost a lot of time. But then on the flip side, you might be able to progress it a lot faster. So it's just, it really depends on, the, you know, I'm going to give a lawyer answer here. Everything depends, right? It, it depends on, on how much risk you're willing to take and how much resources you have. And, and you know, some people don't have that many ideas, I suppose. It's situational, yeah. Um, and I guess, um, you know, people like you with the, with the boom of crowdfunding, um, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you know, people are, like you are super busy um, helping entrepreneurs, um, you know, um, develop products. What's been the impact of, you know, Kickstarter in your 12-year or more, you know, um, career on, um, on what's been the impact of crowdfunding and what you do? Yeah, so for me, so first of all, I'm really excited about crowdfunding in general because I, I think it's finally making the funding side accessible for people. Um, it hasn't been a huge impact for me because the clients that I typically take on aren't, I mean, I do have some clients that are type work in the garage type of, they have an idea and they have a day job and, and they're doing this as a passion project on the side. A lot of the clients that I work with already have some sort of revenue stream. <clears throat> so I think while crowdfunding is great, I think it's more, almost more of a marketing tool than a finance tool at this point, based on how I've seen people using it, you know, getting, for example, getting their idea validated in the market, that's marketing. Um, as and the funding side of it, I'm not sure if um, the people that I've worked with necessarily made a windfall on on uh, you know the Kickstarters and and some of these other startups. So yeah, I, overall, I think I'm usually positive by it because it's opening up the market. Yeah, and I guess most of it goes back into into um, into the business as well as um, you know um, it just it just helps you to 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 the marketing exposure really that first one thousand customers really really important. Okay, okay. Um, you mentioned prior to to our call, you mentioned the fact that product development is not a straight um, A to B shot. Um, could you sort of explain that a little bit, and then we we could jump into the DIY product development um, toolkit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're going to share with your listeners the roadmap, you know, the multi-step uh, path yeah. here. Yeah, um, and. The one thing I want to say with that is this wasn't created off of a textbook or anything like that. I just drew on my knowledge of working for small, medium, even large companies to see how they were iterating development and design and getting things launched and put this together based on all the commonalities that I saw that I, everyone was essentially doing in some form. Um, obviously, the larger companies will have teams that will do some of these in parallel. They might have more than one person working on this. Um, again, launching more than one product at a time, as you alluded to, uh, but ultimately the steps I found to be pretty much the same. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Okay. So, um, it's, it's, it's quite, um, uh, a big, I'd say it's intimidating, you know, initially, um, <laughs> but you, you want to start, you want to go for it. I think I'm sharing no. it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I guess one thing to look at when you're first starting, as I mentioned in the beginning, is in the beginning, when you first get your idea, you have a lot of risk that you're taking on because you don't know what you don't know. And as you work through your process, that red risk bar drops because you're starting to add value. You're starting to 
uh, quantify your market. You're starting to figure out the things that you don't know, and you're able to make better educated decisions. But you're also adding value into it. And that's the second part that I mentioned, that you're starting to make more of an investment. And initially, it might just be in your time. But at some point, you're putting money into the process where you're adding uh, you know, money for prototyping or money for the initial first run and that type of thing. So you're adding value into that. So that's the one thing I wanted to point out in the beginning is that it's just this, this reciprocal relationship between risk and value. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. So there's, there's a chunk of risk at the beginning and then it starts to diminish um, once you ship you know, your, your finished products. And then um, that's when you start to deliver value to, to the market. So it makes sense. It correlates quite, quite nicely. Yeah. So initially you have your idea and then you go out and validate your market. And I'm sure a lot of the guests that you've had on the show have talked about how to do that quickly, right? Whether you, you launch a, a page on the internet and you're feeding traffic to it, or you're going out and you have a stand or a booth or something like that. And you're interacting with people, um, some way of getting some feedback to say, yeah, more than just my immediate circle wants this. What's the magic number for, for product validation? Um, so for um, in projects that you're involved in, um, where, where do they stop and say, okay, um, we've got sufficient data and that there's a problem? So I want to break this up into qualitative and quantitative data that you might get. So qualitative, meaning you're having some sort of a conversation with somebody and able to get some feedback that doesn't necessarily correlate to numbers, but it um, it helps you mold your idea. And I would say those types of conversations are really important, but you can't scale those very easily. You can only have maybe a couple dozen of those conversations, right? So I would yeah. say something right, you know, 20, 30 conversations. Then okay. there's quantitative data where a lot of people might talk about, you know, the four-hour work week where they're launching a, a page and, and funneling Facebook or Google traffic to it. And people are saying yes, no. Um, you can scale that really easily and get a lot better data using that method. But I think if you're not asking the right questions, um, that data can lead you astray. So in my opinion, I would have the qualitative face-to-face discussions first. And then when you feel that you understand your target market really well, then you throw that page out and then you're able to ask the right things. Absolutely. And um, there's also the the pre-sale um, Lander. So um, I, I recall um, about a year ago, there was, um, what's this thing called again? It, it's like a fat scanner. It's a, you know, scale and a fat scanner, basically. I forget the name. Um, so uh, it's a DIY thing it's for the house. Now. Excuse me, that's um, <laughs> Alex. So, so it's a DIY thing for, for the house. Um, it was a domestic one. So they, they kind of prototyped um, it's in a CGI and put it out on Instagram and um, targeted people interested in fitness. And um, they, they grew the database to the thousands um, while they were developing their product. And then they, they launched it eventually, um, which was quite interesting. No, that's great. And as you alluded to with um, people doing more Kickstarters uh, uh, nowadays, you still need an audience to launch to. So even if you're going to do a Kickstarter, having that list is really important. Because if you go and launch your Kickstarter, there's actually so much work involved in it. It's almost a full-time job to run this 30-day campaign, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the, their audience to launch to in the beginning, you're already starting behind the ball. Because uh, Kickstarter and I think the other platforms as well 
the algorithm will throttle you back as far as how much they feature you on the front page. If you're not able to get traction, mm-hmm. you're actually not going to be able to meet your goal. So mm-hmm. having that list of adopters up front is essential now, whether mm-hmm. you're doing it for crowdfunding or you're just doing it to you know test market your idea. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. A busy, a busy Facebook page, Instagram page, whatever, you know, social media, um, you know, will help, you know, it doesn't hurt at all. Okay, so um, the next step, please, which is prototype, right? Concept. Yeah, so as you talked about CGI concepts being thrown out there, again, it's something very quick to have a conversation around. It doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't necessarily have to be CGI. But it's something enough to give people a idea of what you're talking about, because people are very visual or a lot of people are visual in nature and they would rather hold something in their hand or touch it or see it on the screen. So describing it is really difficult sometimes. Um, And so being able to at least prototype it, they're able to say, whoa, that looks vastly different than what I had imagined. It's interesting. Um, So what would you suggest um so so obviously um there'll be various prototypes so so is the cgi sufficient or uh, would you rather have a mold no at this stage i think it's fine again the goal is to say you know i i expected this widget to have five wheels instead of four and you drew it with four and now my mind's kind of blown and you might have described it in a paragraph but you can't get everything down so it, it's just to recalibrate some of the feedback that you're getting from people to say, why do you like or don't like something? And it helps you iterate very quickly. And at this point, you don't want to make this giant investment in something because every time you change it, it's going to cost you a ton of time, money, resources. So again, going back into whenever I prototype something, it might be just out of cardboard or out of foam core or out of CGI, or we're doing it in 3D. And even 3D in some cases can take a long time. So you're just trying to hammer out something, test it and see what is the feedback that I'm getting from this? Is it solving the key problem that I'm looking to solve in the way that it's configured? Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. File a provisional patent application. Is is that not too early? So it's provisional. Okay. Well, so before you start showing it to too many people, at some point, you, if you want to seek patent protection, and I'm not suggesting everyone needs to, but if you're going to want to do it at some point, this would be the point where you file a provisional. And all that means in the US anyway, is that you're going to have that patent pending status. And you don't need a lawyer to do that. You can do it yourself. There's some really great material out on Amazon. Um, Essentially, in the U.S., it will cost you about $60 or so for filing fees. Um, You do have to be reasonably accurate with what you're going to end up with, meaning if your end product is a bit different than what you started with, you're going to have to refile provisional every time it changes. So once you feel that you're at the point of scaling and talking to even more people, I think that that would be the stage where I would try to lock that design down. Makes sense. So would you suggest, you know, they do it themselves or um, would you would you involve a lawyer, you know, um, if resources was not an issue? Yeah. yeah, if the resources are not an issue, you can absolutely hire a lawyer. Again, in the States, it's going to be about $1,000 or so for a provisional patent application, as opposed to the entire patent application that can run, let's say, in the $10,000 range. So. Okay. 
as a percentage wise, it's not as great of an investment, but you can do it yourself. Uh, and it's relatively simple because the patent office doesn't actually look at it until they look at your full patent application. They just have good faith in that you're filling it out properly. You have the right drawings. They're going to put it in your file and kind of keep it sealed for the next year. And they won't look at it until you file your full patent application. Okay. 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 Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and then the next step is validates customers' needs. Yeah. So at this point, you're starting to make a bit more of an investment. And so early on in the concept prototype stage, you're throwing out all these ideas on the wall and saying, what about this? What about this color? What about this shape? What about, you know, all these variables? At this point, you've narrowed it down to, right, here's what we think is going to solve the problem, but I need to go and scale this, right? So going back to your question about what, how, what number is proper, this is the point where you're really trying to get more feedback, maybe in the couple dozen, you know, hundred people type range, depending on how many quantities of this you're going to be selling to really hone in on, okay, is this again, solving people's needs? Are they responding positively to it? Mm -hmm. It's much more detailed. Okay. And then design, it starts to get really serious here with design, right? Yeah. How is it going to be? Manu- well, and you, we're going to do design for manufacturer later, but at this point, you're just working out the exact details. It's going to be exactly an 18 inch diameter, whatever. And those are available off the shelf. Uh, and we can prototype that easily or they're not as readily available. And it's going to have this kind of impact. Um, those types of decisions, whereas in the past, you don't want to concern yourselves on the, at the concept stage with what's possible and what's not. You're just trying to get data back. And I think people will confuse that sometimes early on in the process. That's one of the mistakes they'll say where, oh, uh, you know, they invalidate an idea bef- with uh, whether it's possible or not before they get feedback from the market. And I think mm-hmm. you have to separate that. Now that you're going into the design and functional prototyping phase, you're actually turning those ideas into, you know, realistic physical models. And then, um, you know, he talks about, um, you know, cardboard, you know, using cardboard or, you know, really basic materials for the prototype concept. Um, so, so now in the design and prototype, the functional prototype, are you going to be very concerned about like, you know, um, materials close to what it should look like or the exact materials you're going to use for the finished product? Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. So, so, so from then on, you're moving into the validation of design. What, 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 what happens in the validation of design? So validation of design is, for example, you're making a phone case and you're marketing it as, uh, you know, the toughest phone case out there. At this point, you need to do drop testing and it's going to get dropped from a, you know, whatever it is, two meter height or a single story building or a waterproof test for X amount of minutes. Basically, you're going through and testing the functional prototype against the needs of the uh, users and validating that, yes, we can meet the needs, we can meet the advertising claims, you know, all the things that we promise that we're going to do, the functional prototype can do. I guess this is the time when if you're crowdfunding, you're pretty much ready for, for, you know, for, for crowdfunding. Yeah, I would say around this point or in the next two steps. That's okay. about the time when people start looking at crowdfunding and 
you know, obviously throughout this process, if you're going to crowdfund, it's a good idea to take videos and, you know, as uh, more like behind the scenes type media so you can use it in your crowdfunding campaign. From an IP standpoint, um, where would you have um, the prototype, the functional prototype design um, you know, carried out domestic or overseas? Mm. I would prefer to do the prototype local to where you are only because of the ability to iterate very quickly. Mm. So, for example, one client I was speaking with uh, for a um, textile, she was using a local seamstress that was working with the theaters, had a really quick background in costume design, so was able to knock things out quickly. Obviously, the per piece cost there was high. But she was able to get that feedback in days and then go and take the pieces to her test market and then continually iterate. So in a matter of weeks, she went through maybe uh, five, six functional prototypes. Uh, but it was that speed was shortened. So was, was this a single design or um, a collection of um, designs? Single design. Okay, Makes sense. Makes sense. So you're not very concerned about IP issues if you were to, to outsource, um, you know, um, product validation, um, design, um, overseas, it's, it's more or less the speed to, to iterate. Which, well, which, I think that's why we talked about filing provisional patent up front at your concept stage. <clears throat> I think it has to depend on how risk adverse you are. And especially as you, you mentioned, if you're going to go abroad that at that you would have had to file provisional applications uh, in multiple countries or worldwide. And that starts to get expensive really quickly. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, people's idea isn't, I suppose you don't know if it's viable enough to do that yet. And you might not have the funds to do that yet. So you have to kind of run the risk to say, well, how am I going to differentiate if it's only because I have this one unique way of doing things? Um, mm, you might run into some issues as opposed to maybe saying that, you know what, not only are we going to have the best product, but we'll also have the best service and we'll have the fastest turnaround or we're going to have the highest quality or something like that. Um, usually knockoff products are unable to replicate some of those things. True, true, true. Okay, so, so next um, step is file patent application. Um, well, how do you, what were your suggested steps here? Yeah. And, and so, and I'd like to stress that again, this is kind of based on the U S patent process. So I'm not sure how it is in the UK. Okay. Um, but in the U S at this point, assuming that you filed a provisional patent, you can piggyback on top of that as well. And, and, and that original patent application will go back to the first date. So uh, I would advise using a lawyer at this stage, unless you feel really comfortable in filing it yourself. And again, it depends on your budget. If you've got $1,000 to launch your product, there's no way that you can afford $10,000 to spend on a lawyer uh, or even $10,000 to launch your product. You can't spend your entire budget on a lawyer. So maybe you're just going to decide to do this yourself and wing it. And some people that I've worked with are prolific uh, inventors, idea creators. Um, they And what I try to stress is getting through the entire wheel and the process is worth way more to you to learn the process and the methods than it is to launching that one product, because you might not be as successful as you think first time around, but by going through the process, you get so much back from it. It's worth, worth the journey. 
Yeah. I agree. I agree. Not nothing's ever lost. You know, it's always a learning. Yeah. I mean, okay. So at this point, you're ready for design for manufacture. Um, does, does, does this mean version one is this is version one? You know, product version one ready to to market. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, what you're doing is you're now that you've validated the design, right? Going back to the cell phone, you know that it can do all these performance based things that you've alluded to. Or your textile can uh, be washed without bleeding the colors, or all you know all these other criteria, right? It breathes easily, it doesn't bleed, it all you know it doesn't rip. Um, now you're designing it for manufacture, which is slightly different because you might have to alter the design uh, in the mold for the phone case because it has to be in two pieces, and they have to put in a, a you know a button, and that has to be made out of a different material. So now maybe that has to be changed slightly. And, it's, and this is the tricky phase where you're going to have to make some concessions here. So in order to mass produce this thing for a certain amount of, you know, piece cost, you'll have to make some concessions without overall invalidating all the work that you've done, on, you know, until now. So obviously you wouldn't want to change the material, for example, because if you do change the material, you better go back to validating the design because maybe it doesn't perform as well as you expected. Sounds to me like there's a lot of quality control and um, you know um, refinement, product refinement um, for, to market. Yeah, absolutely. And look, manufacturers are going to help you with this. Uh, if you I, let me put it another way, good manufacturers should help you with this. Uh, where you, you you say this is what my application is, right? It's going to be exposed to UV rays, and it will have to be you know waterproof or all, all these other things. And I'm thinking ABS plastic is the way to go, or maybe it's polycarbonate, or maybe it's something else. And they can come back and tell you, right, out of all the other phone cases that we sold, here's the top two materials. But by that point, you should already know the answer. You know, you've already kind of determined that, hopefully up in the design phase. Interesting. And um, would you consider using a separate company to the factory um, to sort of quality check um, what you're about to to, to launch um, at this stage. Yes. So, and and that kind of speaks to what happens after you make it. So, you know, we go through funding, making it, and then you know the quality checking is part of that. But you have alluded to something about the design for manufacture phase. So, until now, you couldn't probably use independent consultants to help you create a design, whether it's somebody on Fiverr or Upwork or whatever, or someone local to you or a college student or something like that. Uh, same thing for designing for manufacture. Um, what I would try to stay away from is having the, the factory or the manufacturer design your product for you, mm -hmm. uh, not only because then at that point the IP is in their hands, but also because uh, you want to be able to shop that design around to multiple manufacturers and you want to have those raw files, whether it's drawings or specs or whatever it is, you want to have control of that. And I think people sometimes fall into the trap of just telling the manufacturer. So for example, I'm an Amazon seller. You can easily go to a factory and say, right, this is what I want. And they'll make it for you. But you don't really own that design unless you you know, put that effort into creating all that work. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. And then... Um, the framework has the next step as um, funding. Um, so how, how does that work? Yeah, so you said Kickstarter. That's a great idea. Um, friends and family is usually what 
the clients that I work with, you know, their own personal savings. They might have an additional business. Um, frequently, actually, there's people that have a service-based business that are looking to also get into products. So they're just funneling some of the revenue from that. Um, multiple ways of getting funding. Uh, in the U.S., you'll find that banks are usually not able to lend to new startups. Um, they'll go off of the individual's personal credit. Um, so you won't get a whole lot of funding in that way. Okay. 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 And then um, next is make or license. Um, that's very interesting. Um, I just thought my default was like make rather than license. Um, so um, why license um, and, and how do you go about it? Yeah. So people will come to me and say, listen, I don't want to take the idea from beginning to end. I have tons of different ideas. All I want to do is sell my ideas. And you're, you're happy to do that. Um, I've, I mean, I think you have a lot of options in that way. I think when you go and pitch these ideas to companies, they're going to still an- ask the same questions that you would ask yourself if you were launching this on your own as an entrepreneur. They're going to say, what's your market size? How many do you think you could sell? What's your piece cost going to be? Um, they might be able to answer some of those because they're expert manufacturer in phone cases and they happen to be the leader in phone cases, for example. Um, and so they might have some parts of that answered, but you're going to go through at least half of this process at some point yourself in order to answer a lot of the questions they'll be, they'll be asking. So there is the option of licensing it. You're able to get a licensing fee of, let's say, between 4 and 9%, depending on who you talk to. Um, but I, th- I think based on some of the people that I've talked to, it's very hit or miss. Um, you can speak to a lot of different companies and there's also some IP concerns there where even if you, you know, you would almost have to patent your idea to be sure that they're not going to just take your idea and say, Hey, we've actually shelved it three years ago and we were working on the same thing. So appreciate the idea, but we're now that you've helped validate it for us, we're going to go ahead and launch our own. Mm-hmm. So that would be just a pitfall there that if, if people are looking to not get involved all the way, uh, I would make sure that you work with someone that's experienced in licensing. And that's definitely not me. <laughs> we, we, we have an episode around licensing. Um, Perfect. We along in, um, you know, Hollywood. So the Disney's and uh, the Marvel's um, DC's. He had um, a lot of experience. Okay. So um, marketing, um, so what, what, what have your best clients done to, to actually you know, um, market their, their production really well? Yeah. So and actually, before I touch on that, I forgot to touch on the, the manufacturing standpoint. You talked about manufacturing abroad or local. That's yeah. one important decision to make. Some, for some people, it's a moral ethical decision. Some people, it really just boils down to cost. Uh, there's obviously issues with IP. Uh, you talked about quality. Uh, you can definitely get third-party companies to go inspect your product. Uh, they even have template inspection test plans and quality plans for you to use if you want to hire them. They're relatively inexpensive. Uh, for example, if you want them to check, you know, and it's all based on however many products to check, but it, it could be as low as a couple hundred dollars in in Asia <clears throat> to use a local company there. They'll send you photos, the full test report, that type of thing. Uh, with manufacturers, there's, I mean, we could probably have a whole conversation on how to just pick the right manufacturer. Um, but uh, I think the the general um, takeaway for all of this is make sure that you're doing your due diligence. 
and you're picking a manufacturer, not a wholesalers, resellers, they're not actual manufacturers. It's a trading company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So marketing though, so to answer your question finally, <laughs> um, some of the things that are effective are things that we've already talked about, right? This whole time, as you've gone through this process, you've hopefully had a ton of interaction, hopefully with by now hundreds of potential users. That is your core influencer group. Those people are, if they're really excited about the product, are the best people to tap on the shoulder to help say, listen, we're about to launch. We need your help. And in exchange for the help, we're going to give you X percent off or these unique perps or a limited edition item or whatever it is. Um, can you help us get in touch with your groups or your unique niches that you think that this would apply to? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and if you could, you know, get them to to to, to engage and you know, hopefully purchase, um, you have that base, you know, lockdown. Well, and they're going to be able to give you that data, right? So hopefully, across a couple hundred users, you're able to see trends to say, you know what, eighty percent of our customers are female, or they're between the ages of twenty-four and thirty-six, and you're starting to get that demographical information that then you can use in your Facebook or Google uh, ads or whatever it is to be a little bit more targeted. And it's so important to sell direct to consumer. What I mean, direct to consumer, not not your Amazon. Um, where they restrict a lot of customer data for you know, direct consumer from your website or even hand-to-hand, you know, or you know, a pop-up store or something. It's, it's important to, to, to get as close to the customer as possible and for feedback. No, absolutely. And, you, you know, I think there's a challenge there um, with no one has the, well, no one, that's a big word. Amazon has insane reach, right? Yeah. And so... I think the conversions on Amazon last time I checked was probably a year ago. It was something in the 23% range as opposed to your own website, which could be in the one person or less than 1% range. So if you think about how much traffic you have to funnel to your personal page in order to convert, the cost of that is insane. That said, Amazon is obviously not cheap uh, for my product. For example, um, they're looking to take about $8 off of 20. So, uh, the, as you alluded to, you have to be really smart with the data as well because you want to own that relationship with the customer. Um, I will say that that on day one, trying to drive traffic to your site, it's going to be a tall order, right? So I think you mentioned a pop-up store, and I think that's a great idea. Again, having those personal interactions that are more memorable than trying to push traffic through Facebook where people you know, might not be ready to buy. There's all going to be all sorts of things that are going to stand in your way to convert that customer. Yeah, our previous guest, um, is she, she's a startup, and um, she, she sells bikinis um, for um, inclusive, you know, all-inclusive bikinis. And um, basically, she, she, she's launched about three pop-up stores um, with Nordstrom, and she's realized that Nordstrom is not, uh, was it Nordstrom or Macy's? Macy's, sorry. And um, she realized that Macy's was not uh, a target market. And what she did is um, she's going into more boutique stores. But the key thing is she was able to understand, you know, who buys a product and where a product, you know, actually um, is, is the, the placement of a product, you know, the positioning of a product, you know, in, in the whole area of fashion. So she, she's just able to, to understand you know, where her product fits in, in the fashion space. And she does no way 
just having the website um, or selling through a website, she was able to get that data. No, that's absolutely a great example. And I think that's one of the huge, great takeaways that for all of this process, you know, on the four hour work week, and don't get me wrong, Tim Ferriss is amazing. And I read uh, most of his books. I'm a huge fan, but I think people take the wrong takeaway from some of that and say, all I have to do is throw a web page up online and funnel traffic to it. And then I'm going to get a yes or no from it. Mm. But as you alluded to just there, if you had done that, you might have not received that feedback to say, that's not the right market. You just get a binary yes, no, as opposed to a qualitative, um, this is what I need to change about, you know, who I'm marketing to, who I'm selling to in order to make it successful. Mm. Mm. And those things don't scale, right? <laughs> oh, they don't. They don't. They don't. Yeah. And um, the final step is sell and ship. Yeah. So you, you talked about, you know, selling boutique stores, obviously, you know, selling shipping is kind of self-contained there. Uh, at this day and age, anybody can have a Shopify or whatever platform you choose to use store. I would obviously that's a requirement. Now you have to have your website on everything so people can buy, you can ship directly to them. <clears throat> there are uh, houses where you can like fulfillment centers that you can use that are third party. So it's similar to Amazon, except a lot more affordable where you ship them all your product and it's already boxed and all the orders basically go to them and they ship them out. So at some point, once you scale, and again, a similar thing to what we've talking about, my recommendation is you work out of your garage until you can't anymore. So yeah. you're, you're, you're selling your product from your, your pop-up and then you've got some extra inventory in your garage and maybe you're doing some online sales. And once you start hitting a couple hundred units and you just can't keep up with the demand anymore uh, and you can't hire the local university kids or anything like that, uh, that's when you're saying, okay, let's go to the top to the fulfillment center. And the reason I say that is they're going to start charging you by the cubic foot. They're probably going to have monthly fees. They're going to have transaction fees on top of that. But I think if you run the numbers, it's going to be um, usually it's a bit more cost effective to do that than uh, hiring everything in house and trying to scale warehouse space and things like that on your own. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes, makes a a ton of sense. Um, Yeah. I think that about wraps the um the, the framework the diy product development framework before i let you go though um i want to ask you something more conceptual which is how do you stimulate for creativity and that's for you know listeners who are struggling to to, to expand you know with new products you know there's some listeners that are selling you know a range of other people's products or um, they've um, sort of hit a rot with um, with ideas, you know, of their own products. They, they launched um, one or two products, got lucky, um, been able to to make a living, but um, they're, they're just not able to to go any further. What, what would you suggest? What would you advise to to keep um, you know, creativity streaming in in your veins, more or less? Uh, yeah. You. So I think the answer to that is, um, you know, just being more observant. And the more that you use your creativity muscle, the better that it's going to get. So there's two ways of doing this, uh, two, two big ways that I want to mention. One, uh, there's a book called Thinker Toys, and, it, and you can also buy a pack of cards. Um, I, so you can throw that link in, in the show notes. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. And they're basically prompt-based cards that say, uh, you know, how would you make this lighter? How would you do it faster? 
Uh, what if you change the process? What if you reversed it? That type of thing. And they're just quick prompts to make you think of things differently. So I think that's just a nice tool to have in your back pocket. But the main principle that I think listeners or I hope listeners will take away from this is that you have to really drill down the whys. And if you've heard of the principle of the five whys, you have to really dig really deep down and ask, well, why do you want to do something? So for example, you're talking to a, a client and they want uh, scuba diving gear for their Boston Terrier. And you say, well, why do you want that? And they say, oh, well, because I scuba, scuba dive a lot. And you say, okay, um, and well, why would you need it for your terrier? He's like, oh, well, I can't find, uh, you know, babysitting for my Boston Terrier. And then you say, okay, well, why don't we just give you babysitting instead of, you know, build, building, uh, you know, scuba gear for your Boston Terrier? And But if you wouldn't have asked those questions and, you know, I kind of shortened the process a bit because users are usually reluctant to say, you know, they usually say, well, it needs to be red and needs to have these straps on it. And they're going to describe the in detail, all the scuba gear. And if you pick up on that and you say, great, I'm going to build the best scuba gear in the world for Boston Terriers, you might actually flop as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm going to keep asking these five whys and I'm going to go to the root of the issue, which is I should have a doggy daycare set up at the marina and it's going to solve all these issues. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a hugely important exercise um, with, with almost any endeavor and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm, I'm more, more aware of the seven whys, but um, oh. yeah, just why, why, why? Yeah, I love that. Uh, maybe it translates differently across the pond. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okie dokie. Um, is there any other, um, did we miss any other thing, you know, around um, developing products? So I, I guess this can work in food. You know, this concept can work in food. This framework can work in food, work in apparel. It can work with electronics, um, you know, pretty much any physical product you're trying to bring to market. Absolutely. Amazing, amazing stuff. Now, um, for listeners that want to, you, you have a podcast. Um, you've got a great website that breaks everything we've just discussed down. And you also have a Facebook group. Um, so um, what's the name of your podcast, please? Yeah, it's called The Product Startup. And you can check it out on iTunes still. It is archived. I don't produce it anymore. Uh, I've, I've just been inundated with uh, work at this point, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, just a great resource. It's got interviews with other product creators that Wait, don't have a product development background. Wait, top and that's the whole reason I started it. Yeah. What are your top three episodes on your podcast? Oh, gosh. Now you put me on the spot. Uh, I actually do have a top 10 interviews, uh, a menu gotcha. item. Uh, I'll link to it. I'll link to it. Don't worry. And then um, your your Facebook group um, is the Product Startup Workshop. Okay. Okay. I'll link to that too. Um, yeah. Brilliant. 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 Thank you so much um, for, for for taking your time out because I know it's morning there um, and you're busy with work. But um, you know I appreciate appreciate your time and appreciate um, the framework. No. Hey. Thanks for the time. Appreciate talking about this. Super excited about it. Um, everyone listening, do not give up, go through the process, whatever you get out of it, even if your product doesn't work, you're going to get so much more out of it as a, you know, as a person, be able to grow your skill set, your knowledge in the space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great stuff. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. So that was a wrap on this week's episode of 2X e-commerce. Remember you can catch me every week. 
and also send your questions and comments on Twitter using the hashtag 2XEcommerce. Keep yourself in the loop by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It only takes a few seconds and it means you'll get the most up-to-date episodes to help you grow your online store. Do have a good one till I catch you on the next show. Bye-bye.